The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to This Is Working. On this show, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on how we live and how we work. My guest today is Dr. Tarika Barrett. Tarika began her professional journey working in education and academia, always with the goal of helping those who needed help the most. In 2016, she took her talents and her mission to Girls Who Code, a nonprofit committed to changing the dismal statistics of women in the tech industry. Right now, according to Pew Research, women hold only 25% of computing jobs available in tech, and only 5% of those, according to another study, are women of color. Tarika worked her way up the ladder at Girls Who Code, and in 2021 was tapped by the organization's founder, Rashma Sajani, to become CEO. Girls Who Code has introduced nearly half a million women and non-binary people to coding. Tarika wants that number much higher. Her goal is to close the gender gap in entry-level tech jobs by 2030. Girls Who Code's programming is central to that mission. To kick things off, I asked Tarika to share what makes her nonprofit so powerful. Here's our conversation. We're an organization working to close the gender gap in tech. We're leading the movement to inspire, educate, and equip students who identify as girls or non-binary with the computing skills needed to pursue 21st century opportunities. And since launching in 2012, Girls Who Code has actually reached 450,000 students with our programming and nearly 90,000 college-aged alums. And for us, by addressing this growing gender gap in tech, we're empowering our community to seek out the thriving, exciting careers of the future, the ones that are actually going to offer them the improved quality of life and upward mobility that comes with a career in tech. And in terms of how you know, girls and young women find us, you know, we've done an incredible job to get our programming out there. And especially in this moment during the pandemic, you know, folks can go to our website, girlsacode.com, but we have free after-school clubs programs. We have summer programming. We also reach young women in college and even into the workforce. And beyond that, you know, we often say that the minute that a girl is born, we're chasing her and telling her that she can become a woman in tech. And we've even created book series aimed at babies through middle schoolers. So for us, it's about direct programming and reaching girls where they are and energizing them about computer science, but also movement building in terms of changing the image of what a computer scientist looks like and does. Hmm. So can you give us an example of what an average person who has gone through your program, when they would come into contact with it? but how long they would stay and what the curriculum would be like? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, girls and young women come in contact with our program in different ways. My daughter's almost uh, 13 now, but I remember when our fiction series came out and she found it and she looked at the cover and saw this diverse group of girls and she immediately started reading it with this plot and storyline around coding. We have girls who, you know, get involved in our programming that way, but very often it's through schools and libraries and community centers and universities where our programming happens. And so if they're in an after-school club, they are coming together in a sisterhood of their peers. Our curriculum very much involves identifying an issue in your community that you want to change through tech and the girls coming together, learning about women in tech spotlights, women who are making an influence in the field and the sector. 
And then also doing kind of things that resemble what you do in the tech industry, like stand-up meetings and planning out their project. And so that's what it looks like across a lot of our programming. So one of the things that happened for Girls Who Code is that during the pandemic, we recognized that we would have to reach girls where they were. Half of the girls we serve come from historically underrepresented groups, and we knew we were at risk of leaving them behind. And so a lot of this in-person programming that I'm telling you about, we moved it to offer virtual options as well, deeply expanding and scaling our programming. And I'll give you an example in terms of our summer programming, which would normally be seven weeks, girls coding from nine to four in partner classrooms like across the country, 1,600 girls total, we managed to actually reach 6,000 girls by changing it to a two-week virtual program, which was nothing short of amazing. So we really reach girls at every stage of the pipeline as early as elementary school and all the way through college and career. How much of this is self-directed versus someone from their community saying, hey, you've got to go and join this program or you have to do the after-school or summer work? Dan, that's such a good question. I think it's a mix, right? I think the other thing that I want to underscore is a lot has changed. Our girls in school learn about role models like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, Albert Einstein, but they don't hear about the Katherine Johnsons, the Ada Lovelaces, all these phenomenal women in tech who've had an influence. So we're up against making sure that girls even know what coding is. And so sometimes right now, especially because it's a little bit more pervasive and we take credit for that. Some girls know, come to our programming, seek it out through their schools. There's a Girls Who Code club on you know, their school campus, and we have it happen that way. But we also have to make sure that we're out there in the ether telling girls that they are coders. They can be computer scientists. Changing the image of what a computer scientist looks like is fundamental to what we do. A recent campaign that we did with Doja Cat creating a codable music video, which blows my mind. I suddenly became very cool (laughs) in the eyes of my teenage kids. But that was all about showing girls and women, you know, across the globe that they can use, you know, computer science in a way that they didn't typically like associate with it. Similarly, we had a campaign called Make That Change, right, featuring real women in STEM who are using their tech skills to empower themselves while bettering their communities. We want our girls to know that you can create a career in STEM on your own terms. You can defy the stereotypical notion of a robotic tech worker that's apolitical. Our community is deeply political, and we want them to know that they can see the change they want to see in their communities, but also they can change the trajectory of their lives through computer science. Because we also know these are the fastest growing, highest paying jobs in our economy. What are you finding that works the best? You talked about the Doja Cat. You've got Lizzo doing things for you, and then you have the engineers and the mentors. What, What have you found that keeps girls engaged? Is there any one or two things that works that, you're, that you've been surprised by? I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that work, right? Like we know if you engage girls early, if you give them, you know, the opportunities and tools to improve their skills, as you said, if you give them exposure to role models and women who get them excited about tech, but also we know you have to make the workplaces more inclusive, right? You have to make sure that we're not dealing with still the challenges we see very often in the media around locker room talk pervading these environments. You know, it's one thing to build a pipeline. It's another thing for these girls and young women to get their first ever tech job. And then the revolving door happens. We did a study 
with Accenture that found that 50% of women leave the tech industry by the age of 35. That's astounding. So when I talk about Girls Who Code and our secret sauce, it's that sisterhood, right? That keeps these girls recognizing that they belong, that they can persist in the field. You know, when one girl gets stuck on a, you know, thorny coding problem, we've created an environment where her peers step up and help. You know, it's about creating a sisterhood of coders so that, frankly, when the obstacles to entry into this old boys club seem impossibly high, there's a completely separate door for these young women to walk through. We know it's complex, but we know it's very much about them understanding that ecosystem that they're going into, but feeling deeply confident that they are entitled just like any boy or guy they see to that opportunity in tech. So let's talk about those tech jobs. You've been critical of tech companies for not putting women into leadership positions and not uh, making sure that there is the support that women need to be able to see themselves in these jobs versus dropping out. Um, What was the age? It was 35. Is that what you said? 35. Yeah. Half of women. And Black women hold only 3% of computing jobs in the US. You have been involved with Girls Who Code for a decade. You've been the CEO for a year. Are you more optimistic now about tech companies, not just opening doors, but like seeking out these women and making sure they stay in these roles? Has your perspective on, on where tech is on this topic changed or stayed the same? Dan, your questions are so good. It is a tough one to answer. We stay optimistic because we know our girls and young women, and they're so dynamic, and they're exactly who these tech companies need. So we always kind of keep that lens. But I think that some things have happened, frankly, just at a societal level that have changed the way that people have thought about this. When you think about this pandemic, right, that has exacerbated so many of the educational inequities that we knew existed, but they've come into even starker relief right now. It's pushed people to really look at how they think about opportunity, who gets opportunity. And I'm heartened that the conversation seems to have shifted somewhat over the last few years about who should have a seat at the table. And the numbers that you're pointing to, Dan, are really, you know, abysmal, right? Women make up only 26% of computing jobs. As you you talked about Black women, combined Black and Latinx women only hold 5% of computing jobs. And we still have half of women saying that they lack female role models. A third say that they have unequal growth opportunities compared to male colleagues. And we know that women make up only 5% of leadership within tech. And women of color are absolutely zero Black and Latino women CEOs of Fortune 500 tech companies. While these numbers show that the road ahead is a long one, we know that closing the gender gap in tech, our actual mission, it goes way beyond these statistics, right? It's about changing the lives of the most marginalized groups in our country. STEM jobs pay. We know that there are also going to be a half a million new STEM jobs by 2029. When you think about Black women and you know the wage gap compared to white men, it's 63 cents the dollar. For tech, Black women actually make 90 cents to the dollar. This is urgent stuff here, right? It's about preparing women for the labor force of the future. I would say that what feels different in this moment is that it's almost like we all are in on the same page. You can't opt out of tech today, right? Like you can't just say, well, tech, you know, is messed up. We'll have another pathway. All these issues are front and center. And I feel as though... Folks recognize their issues, 
folks recognize that there are people who've been, you know, historically marginalized and excluded and are beginning to think about what that looks like. Where the big gap for me is, Dan, is that these thoughts aren't being operationalized in a concrete way that translates into changing hiring practices and changing culture enough at these tech companies so that we see the gender gap close in a way that's sustained as opposed to recruitment that is all about numbers and quotas and trying to move the needle in a performative way as opposed to something that's deep and really gets hardwired into the DNA of some of these companies. Yeah, I, I would think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would assume that this um, great reshuffle would be helpful in this moment where companies are seeing their workers leave or rethink uh, why they are in their jobs and decide to go take other jobs. Suddenly, companies are desperate to retain talent, to attract top talent. Is this an opportunity to say, hey, you want talent? We've got talent right here. 90,000 <laughs> you know, of our girls are, 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 are right now entering the workforce and you should hire all of them. Dan, you need to work at Girls Who Code because yes, that is what I say all the time. Absolutely hire them. But you know, it's about employers also broadening the scope of where they're looking for strong candidates. The focus has been on Ivy League universities, you know, on you know, certain kinds, caliber, quote unquote, of schools. I myself went to a city university of New York college alongside other working class kids. And we need companies to rethink accessibility and flexibility as they think about our students who are looking for opportunities. Because remember, a bunch of them have lost the ability to directly connect with potential employers, right? We also know that these are students who have other responsibilities, are caregiving, they might be working, right? And you can't find, you know, young women who more greatly embody resilience and bravery, the exact qualities these companies desperately want to have reflected in their workforce, but they often don't always recognize these talents or structure their recruitment efforts so that that's who they're looking you know, to bring on. We actually had a hiring summit. We had two of them actually in response to the pandemic. We had one of our partners in our January hiring summit hire 17 young women from that event alone. And Dan, you might be thinking that seems like a small number, but for these young women, it was everything. So for me, it's about that. I also am really, really adamant that folks think about academic credentialing differently because it really is narrow. It's super privileged in terms of perspective of, around success. And it consistently shuts out students who bring all the diversity that we need to see in tech. I would say the conversation has become richer but we still lack action, you know, oriented steps that like get us to a different place in terms of the sector. So if you could wave a magic wand, do you get rid of all college diploma requirements? <laughs> That's a really controversial question, Dan, I will say. I think anything that dramatic might be a little challenging, but I do think it's a reality check around what do you really need to be successful in a given role? And how do you basically support young people differently when they get there? I think a lot of folks in the industry recognize that they've kind of created a bar that they've enjoyed, you know, a certain amount of prestige around and a certain amount of elitism, but in fact, don't necessarily correlate with that person being deeply successful at that company. And in fact, having a problem-solving orientation and, you know, other kinds of attributes go far further. And so a lot of it, I think, is, yes, 
Do you really need a BA for that? Maybe you don't, right? And let's go one step further. Can you actually put in place some kind of training system and support community that allows anyone that you hire to be successful because you embrace a growth mindset? So I do think that there is so much more that these companies could actually do. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Dr. Tarika Barrett. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back. Girls Who Code has a seriously ambitious mission, and there's a lot competing for Tarika's focus. I asked her to share how her team decides where to put their energy. We know we have to continue to expand and extend that pipeline so that more girls and young women have opportunity. But, you know, the pandemic also made it crystal clear that we can't take our eyes off of our older cohorts of students, right, who really need our help in cementing pathways into the industry. So, you know, I became CEO in April of 2020 at the height of the pandemic at a moment when our students need us the most. We recognize that we have to kind of do it all, right? Our students come from historically underrepresented groups. Half of them do. Kids who look you know, like me and grew up just like I did, those are the young people that we have to make sure they were already underserved and written off, right? So in this moment, our programming is designed so that they don't fall further behind, that they were engaging them, letting them know they can still have opportunity. And I'm pleased to say that even the flagship summer program I mentioned that used to be seven weeks and is now two weeks and virtual instead of in person, the outcomes around that program were equally strong, if you can imagine such a thing, as it was for the students who had done it in person. That gives me tremendous hope and the confidence to know that we continue to do really good work. And it's about meeting our students where they are. We're both on the workforce side with programs like our work prep, leadership academy, virtual mentoring, hiring summits. And we're also making sure that we're reaching girls through our clubs and other opportunities during the summer. So we really try to do it all as hard as that is. And critical would be conversations like the one I'm having with you now, where we're making sure that people really think deeply about what it means to encourage a girl or young women to enter the field of tech. There is a word that you use, and you've used it in this interview, and I've seen you use it elsewhere, that in 10 years of interviewing people for LinkedIn, I've never heard any CEOs or nonprofit leaders use it even once, which is sisterhood. It is a uh, very important word to you. It seems to be. And I would just love for you to explain 
how you think about it and 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 why so you seem to be very intentional about uh, making that a term that you want the girls who code community to to kind of embrace sisterhood is something that you know has shaped my life personally and continues to shape the lives of those in our community when i think about my own leadership journey you know i stand on the shoulders of generations of inspiration women who got me to where i am today and i think about the girls who inspired me to keep working for a better future the minute you know a girl engages with girls who code they hear about this sisterhood it's about lifting up each other it's about recognizing women in tech who have been hidden figures who haven't been recognized it's knowing that you might get stuck but you're going to have this community of support there for you these are young women who know that they can keep leaning keep holding on each other and holding on to these bonds in spite of what they encounter when they go into a, you know a computer science classroom in college and feel like they are in a very small minority of young women they know how to seek each other out and that sisterhood is what will carry them through their journey and eventually into the workforce we're so proud of our 450,000 and we know that they lean on each other when things are difficult so our sisterhood i said it before is absolutely our secret sauce and we welcome allies right you don't have to be a girl or identify as a girl or non-binary, you can be a part of this sisterhood in supporting other young women and girls in this journey, asking, you know, a niece, a daughter, an intern, a colleague, whether they've considered a career in tech, the work really lives with all of us. But I feel like the sisterhood element of what we do is a huge differentiator and what makes, I think, our numbers around persistence that we see really spectacular. Yeah, I think it's great. It's such an evocative word. You can exactly see how people would support each other with it. I'd love to talk to you about your own career. Is being CEO something that you've always knew that you would do? Was this like the exact path you would laid out for yourself? Absolutely not. My predecessor, Rashma, tells a funny story where she claims that she asked me multiple times and I rejected her. I can remember one, one time when she asked me to uh, step into this role. I don't think either of us uh, was ready. I will say that I knew it was the right time during a pandemic. I knew how important it would be for our girls, especially black and brown girls, to see me step into this role at a moment like that. I come to the space first and foremost as an educator and an activist. You know, I've been fighting for issues of equity in education nearly my entire career. I've been so fortunate. I have a mom, you know, who taught me about the power of education, but also how to go into spaces to see the type of work that was necessary but wasn't happening and to have the agency to believe that I could actually be the change that I wanted to see that was needed. And you know, my journey, when I think about the through line in terms of my past and this moment sitting in the CEO chair at this wonderful organization where, you know, we're one of the largest girls organizations on the planet. You know, when I was at the New York City Department of Education, I worked with kids who, frankly, many people had written off. Most of them were poor black and brown kids who looked a lot like me when I was their age. And, you know, I got super lucky. I led a team who basically built a first of its kind high school focused on software engineering. It was a part of the then mayor's plan to make New York City into a tech hub. But one of the challenges I encountered really early was that it was clear that there was a tension, that this school was going to be potentially meant to be a screen school, which would mean that kids would have to test in order to be accepted. But I also knew that relying solely on test scores 
would put kids of color at a tremendous disadvantage, right? And there are lots of reasons for it. You know, poverty, racial bias in testing, disinvestment in low-income neighborhoods. So even though I knew it risked turning off some of our key stakeholders, I fought against screening and rallied support for our decision to open the school to any kid in New York, in New York City interested in programming. And today, right now, any kid who wants to learn computer science can apply to the Academy for Software Engineering. And for the kids who are there, 95% of them are graduating on time. And, you know, I look back at that experience and helping to get that school off the ground was absolutely one of my proudest accomplishments as an educator. But it was an incredible lesson, right, that you have to kind of live and exist at the intersection of opportunity and bravery and that you have to disrupt the status quo every chance that you get. And I think about that experience and I know that it's what led me to say yes, eventually, to my job here as CEO of Girls Who Code and what drives me, right, in terms of this cause. Because we're at a moment where I actually think equity in tech education is possible. I actually think closing the gender gap in tech is possible. And I knew that I had to be a part of that change. Can you talk a little bit more about how you pushed back? When you were building this academy and you had tech leaders and VCs saying to you, this should be elite and there should be testing to go in this, how were you able to push what you thought was essential in the face of, of pushback? It was really, really hard. A lot of it was kind of keeping my own, frankly, emotions in check on a certain level around this because it was also um, stressful in the way that I knew that this could be a huge opportunity for kids of color in the city. And if anything, my fear was, frankly, a lack of support, right? Because you can build a school. It's a different thing to build something that's a true collaboration between industry and the city. And that's what we ended up doing. But for me, I stayed curious. And I also knew that this was about hearts and minds, right? And a a lot of it was exposure. I was a teacher, right? I started off in education. I knew the potential of my kids. I knew they could do anything. You know, this was a room full of uh, folks. Not one person had a kid in the public school system. So, It was a lot of education. It was a lot of speaking plainly and candidly. It was a lot of being smart and bringing in school leaders who got it and who could speak about the kinds of things they were able to achieve in schools that they had designed with students who didn't look like the typical students that these folks had intended to have attend, you know, this school, because it was very much modeled after one of the specialized high schools in New York City was the vision. And we had to change that to not that school, but rather let's talk about a different kind of school. So I think, you know, some of the conversations were really hard because at the core were notions of whether or not black and brown kids could learn how to code. And that, that's really, really tough. But I am so pleased that so many of the people who were part of those early conversations are now champions in this work in ensuring that every kid gets access to meaningful tech education and opportunity. So I do think that it's hard work, but it's a reminder that when you can have these kinds of open conversations and push this dialogue and really force people to kind of be introspective about like strongly held beliefs about who does what, you know, when folks had conjured the notion of, you know, a computer scientist in their minds or one of the students at the school, it didn't occur to them that it could be a black girl from Queens, right? They were conjuring their tiny little Steve Jobs or their tiny little Bill Gates. And so I take tremendous pride in knowing that I could have shifted their thinking in that way. I have to ask, why did you say no to the CEO job originally? And what have you learned from that? 
I don't know if you'll fully grasp this, but I'm an introvert at heart. And so this was a huge leap for me. I have so loved sort of being, you know, that number two person working behind the scenes with a very internal focus where, you know, I get so much energy from my internal team. We have the most incredible staff at Girls Who Code. And, you know, I didn't really want to change that dynamic, but it was definitely something that I was crystal clear that when Reshma asked me to do this in the pandemic, that I had to say yes, and I was energized to say yes, and I knew that I would be successful. So much of this, frankly, was her belief in me. I think the last thing that I'll say on that question is that it was an awareness that I think both my predecessor and I had around, you know, how ready were each of us to kind of make this move. And having a founder transition from an organization is a huge deal. It took tremendous preparation, support, planning. And so we did it the right way. This was like such an exemplary transition where our community could see what it looks like to have, you know, one woman in power pass the baton to another woman and especially women of color. I am so proud of how we did this together, but it required some thinking in addition to, you know, everything I shared about why the moment was right. So one thing I love, love to end with is career advice. What kind of career advice do you tend to give? And you've talked about how you are an introvert. I would love to know if you have specific career advice for introverts. Yeah, let's say something to the introverts. I continue to be reflective around things that push me out of my comfort zone. It doesn't mean you have to say yes to every opportunity, but you should at least interrogate it and say what stands in the way. Very often in my career journey, I found that I've been the one standing in my way because I thought I didn't want to do it or I didn't think I was ready or I thought it would be extremely stressful when in fact, it's much easier to put one foot in front of the other and try it and kind of test the waters. And if you have you know, a supportive organization or company, you find that they're they're scaffolding to support you in exploring and stretching and growing professionally. And certainly those are the kinds of roles and organizations you want to seek out. And then the second bit of advice I want to offer is always mentorship. Never discount the folks who are in your corner that you can lean on and that you can turn to who have wonderful examples of how they've navigated a given professional situation or how they think about, you know, a transition, which I know is often very difficult as people think about new careers, but mentorship is key. And beyond uh, being on the receiving end, please pay it forward. You know, I never say no to anyone who reaches out you know, to have a conversation because people have shown me tremendous kindness in my own professional journey when I just wanted to have an inter you know, informational interview or ask a question about an organization. And so that's the advice I would offer up. That was Tarika Barrett. To dive deeper into this conversation, be sure to check out my newsletter. You can find it right at the top of my LinkedIn profile, and it's also called This Is Working. Tarika had, I thought, just great advice for introverts and really anyone looking to grow in their careers. Find and work in organizations that offer a scaffolding that allow you to take chances, then push yourself to take those chances. Don't be afraid to do things one step at a time, and along the way, find a mentor and mentor someone else. I would love to know, are you a mentor? Do you benefit from mentorship? Let me know online. You can tag me into the conversation on LinkedIn or anywhere else using the hashtag thisisworking. I can't wait to read your thoughts. This is Working is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produced this podcast with help from Stephen Valdivia, Taisha Henry, and Candace Weiner. 
Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.